You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning again. Uh, You're stuck with me one more week, guys. So Mark is on week two on the Buffalo River. Uh, so pray for him. They should be back next week. Had a great time next week. And there's several, several of us that are out there, uh, fathers who have taken their kids out there. So please continue to pray uh, for their trip. Uh, if you want to begin your Bibles out, you can unlock them, power them on, open them up, whatever you do. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 17. And y'all, this, uh, this sermon is very relevant because we're going to talk about what we do right now. What we do at this time every week, what many of you did in your Bible studies last hour, we're going to talk about the Word of God. We're going to talk about the Bible and what the Bible claims about it. And so I want to ask you a question. Get your Bible out if you've got it, uh, or your phone, or whatever it is, and hold it in your hand. And I want to ask you a question. What is this book to you? What is it? Now, there's, I could hardly ask you a more impactful question, more impactful on your life than how you view this book. You know, the truth is, I think a lot of us view this book in different ways. Maybe some of you view it like this, like an old Encyclopedia Britannica. Y'all remember these? Man, when I was a kid, anytime teacher said you had to do a book report, no problem. He's going to pull these out. And they were full of great facts, full of all kinds of things that you could learn and they could teach you. But y'all, let's be honest, nobody uses these anymore. Has anyone bought a set of encyclopedias in the last year? Anyone? You need to get a refund if you did, okay? We have Google. You don't need these anymore, right? And so if you pulled out one of these D-Days, man, maybe it kind of feels like an old book. Maybe that's this feels sometimes. Man, some things in here are true. They're still true. They were accurate when they were written. But now, man, we've, we've updated some things. We've found out some more stuff. And so maybe this is a little outdated. Maybe to some of you, it's like an old children's story, one of Aesop's fables. Like this, the tortoise and the hare, you know, great story. And y'all, this book, you see, man, it's full of great stories, some of the best stories in all of literature. And you know what? It teaches us some great morals. Slow and steady wins the race. It's a great moral. Did it actually happen? Eh, probably not. But that's okay. It teaches us some morals. You know, I've got here, some of us, I think, view God's Word as something like this. This is the manual for my beautiful blue Toyota Corolla out in the parking lot right? Man, this thing full of everything in here is true, written by the people who made it, right? And when I'm in a bond, when something's gone wrong, this is great. But you know what? That's about the only time I pull this thing out. When everything's working, everything's going fine, this thing just sits in the glove box, and I'll pull it out in a time of crisis. Maybe that's kind of what the Bible is for you, some help in a time of crisis when that warning light is going off. You know, for some of us, I think we see God's words, the Bible, it's something like this. It's a map of Disney World, right? Kind of a map to the theme park, a map to help us navigate to the best experiences in life and make our life as good as we can. You know, and so we get out the map and we, we find, we navigate the places that say, all God's promises are yes and amen. Man, I want to go on that ride, don't you? Let's go to that ride. You know, we read, you're more than a conqueror. Yeah, let's find our way. Let's navigate over there. There's other parts, parts of the map. And maybe we avoid. And so there's a part on there that says, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Well, that sounds like a terrible ride. I don't want to go on that. 
Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? No, thank you. We'll stick over to this part of Disney World. And you know, so when we do that, we tend to cherry pick this book and pick out the parts that kind of are going to give us the best experiences. And I'll just tell you all, when you do that, you're left with essentially the end of the Gospels, not the whole parts where Jesus tells us how to live, just the end where he dies for us and raises again for our sins, the book of Acts, and the parts of the epistles that aren't too hard on us. And that's kind of the parts of this book that we navigate to, and the rest of it we can just set aside. That's not parts of the park we want to visit. I think for a lot of us, this book feels a lot like this, like some old calculus textbook, right? Sure, everything's in it's true. It's useful, I guess. If you're like a rocket scientist or something, it'll be useful. But man, if I ever want to understand what's in there, I can't open this thing. I've got to have some expert, some nerd to explain it to me. And I could never explain it to anyone else. Man, that thing is like gibberish. Well, y'all, here's the problem with all of those views of this book. Each and every one of these views, man, it's partly true, but it's incomplete. Each and every one of these views is less than what this book claims about itself. And that's what we're going to study this morning, what this book claims about itself. And I'll just tell you, if as a Christian... If you view this book as anything less, anything incomplete compared to what it claims about itself, listen, you're going to grow disheartened. You're going to grow unsatisfied. In fact, the only way to live as a Christian is with a certainty, with a belief that this book is all, everything God claims it to be. So, What does it claim to be? What does the Bible say about itself? Y'all, the very word of God. And because it's the very words of God, it is everything your soul needs to believe the truth and to act on it. That's what this book we're going to see claims about itself. So let's open this book. Let's open your Bibles. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, and the words will be on the screen if you want to follow along as well as I read. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you may remember last week, Last week, Paul was reminding Timothy, hey, it's going to be like the bull in the bull ring. You're going to have times of difficulty until Jesus comes back. It's going to be wild and violent and difficult. And he says, hey, that's not going to get any better. In fact, here he says, it's going to go from bad to worse. And so in, living in those times, there's something you've got to have, Timothy. You've got to have the Bible. You've got to have the Holy Scriptures. And here's why. He gives us three reasons. The first is this. The Bible is God's words. 
This book is the words of God. He says in verse 16, it's breathed out by God. Out of his, it's like breath out of his lungs. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, y'all, the words in this book are as personal to God as the breath out of your own lungs. And it's kind of hard to pick up in the translation. In the original language, really what he's saying is, that is its most essential characteristic. That is what is most true about this book, is that it is breathed out by God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. Listen, I could come breathe on one of you. Any volunteers for me to come breathe on you? Front row, y'all are getting it a little bit. I could come breathe in you, and you could say, wow, that smells like rotten eggs. Or wow, man, that smells like roses. That's amazing. Or you could say, that's hot, or that's cold, or that's strong, or that's weak. You could describe it in a lot of different ways, but no matter what else it is, most essentially, it is my breath. That's what these words are. The most true thing about it, it is breath from God's own lungs. And this gets to what you may have heard called the doctrine of inspiration. Listen, y'all, this is one of the most important doctrines we hold. It's one of our essential beliefs here at Bethel, and it may be one of the most under attack in our culture today, the doctrine of inspiration. Here's what that means. Here's what that we believe by the doctrine of inspiration. This book is kind of like Jesus. It is both fully human and fully divine. Here's a good summary of the doctrine of inspiration. When you hear us say the the Bible is inspired, we mean that God wrote the Bible through human authors without losing their humanity to communicate exactly what he wanted without losing its divinity. You get that? God communicated through human authors without losing their humanity. And so, y'all, when Paul is writing here, this is Paul writing. He writes like Paul. He sounds like Paul. He's writing to Timothy. And there's circumstances and things going on in their life that influence what he wrote, okay? This book wasn't just magically delivered by an angel who descended with it already written, kind of like some holy Amazon Prime or something, okay? That's like the Book of Mormon. It wasn't written by men entering some kind of trance where they didn't know what was going on and, and something overcame them and their humanity was destroyed for that moment, like the writings of the Buddha. It was written, by, it was written through humans without, without destroying any of the humanity, but it is fully divine. Although it may have a lot of human authors, it really has one source so that God did in a way that he communicated exactly what he wanted not in the ballpark, not in general, exactly like the breath out of his own lungs, the word of God. And y'all, you need to know something. This is completely unique with the Bible. I don't know if you knew this. Completely unique. All other so-called sacred writings, you know where they get their unity from? They get their unity from the fact they were essentially written by one person. Or maybe one person and a few of his followers. They got together and wrote the book, and that's where it gets its cohesion and unity from. Not so with the Bible. Y'all, this is not one book. This is 66 books. It's written in three different languages. It has 40 authors. And y'all, those authors are from all over the place. Some are rich, some are poor, some are kings, some are peasants, from all over the place. It's written on three different continents and over a time span of 1,600 years. And y'all, despite all that diversity, there's unbelievable unity with this book. This book tells one story. One story. God created us. We sinned. 
He redeems us and he will reign. That is the overall Bible, uh, the story of this Bible. Y'all, and all the pieces fit together like a perfectly made jigsaw puzzle. How can that be? How can there be such unity from a book so diversely written? Well, y'all, it's a divine miracle. It's inspired. It is fully human and fully God. That is the doctrine of inspiration. And so that's what the first thing Paul wants us to know. Y'all, these, this book, it's inspired. It's the words of God. Second, he says, the Bible transforms us. It transforms us. Verse 15 through 17, he talks about this. Verse 16, he says, this thing, man, it's like gold. It is tremendously valuable for a few things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He's saying, man, this thing will tell you everything you need to know. It'll tell you what is true. It'll tell you what is good. It'll tell you what is wrong and what is sinful. So much so that he makes this unbelievable claim in verse 17. He says, this book, it will make you complete. In fact, y'all, without exception, it will equip you for every good work. God's words, they're completely sufficient. There is no exception. It doesn't lack anything. It's all good, and it's all the good. It won't lie to you, and it will tell you all the truth. That's what Paul is saying, but you know what? It's more than that. It'll do more than just tell you the truth. In verse 15, he says, Timothy, this book, these scriptures, can make you wise for salvation. This word wise, it's more than just knowing a bunch of facts. Wisdom, it's like knowledge applied. It's like the truth that has seeped into your being and developed your character. And so it'll make you wise for what? Wise for salvation. God's work of making you a new creation, bringing you from death to life, from enemy of God to child of God. So listen, y'all, this is important. This is huge. The Bible is claiming about itself. It will save you, and it will work out your salvation in your life. See, all these other books, all kind of people, they all give you good advice, right? A lot of people can give you good advice and tell you what's true, but they can't make you do it. What's the saying? You lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink, right? You know, and isn't it true that most of us, we know the good we should be doing? Like, we don't, we don't lack knowledge, usually, of what we should be doing. We lack the ability and the power to do it. We don't need more knowledge. We need more ability. And what Paul is saying here is unbelievable. He's saying this word, these God's words here, they don't just inform you, they transform you. They can lead you to water, and guess what? They can make you drink. Only the words of God can do that. And this book claims to be living and active in your life in that way. Well, I probably haven't told you anything you don't know so far. The Bible is God's word. It's inspired. It can transform you. It's living and active. If you've been in church for any amount of time, that's probably nothing new. But y'all, this last thing that Paul tells us was surprising to me, honestly. This is what he tells Timothy. Verse 10 through 13, he says, you know, Timothy, the Bible has a lineage. The Bible has a lineage. And so when he wants to, to prove to Timothy how valuable these scriptures are, what does he point to? He points to his own life. He points to the importance of scriptures by pointing to his life. Now, not all of us may want to invite that kind of comparison, but Paul does here. In verse 10, he says, Timothy, you saw my life, my teaching, my actions, my patience, my love. Timothy, you saw how I lived my life. I lived it in front of you. And then verse 11, he points to his sufferings. Sufferings at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Y'all, why these? I don't know if you know this, Paul suffered a lot of places. 
That list could have kept going for a while. So why did he pick these three places to point out his sufferings and his persecutions? Well, y'all, all three of these cities are in the province of Galatia. And Paul planted his church there on his first missionary journey, and that's where Timothy was from. In fact, the Bible says he was a young man from Lystra. And y'all, Lystra is where Paul was stoned and left for dead. Everybody walking away thought, that's a dead man. But Paul says here, and it says in Acts, God spared him. God took care of him. Y'all, Timothy was there. That's where he was growing up. That's where he was living. And you know, when Paul's writing this, man, they're old friends by now. But Paul, when he's saying, hey, you want to see the impact God's words have made in my life? All he has to say is, Lystra. Timothy, Lystra. And what's even more unbelievable, y'all, that's when Timothy decided to sign up for this gig. He sees Paul come to town, get stoned and left for dead, and is like, where do I sign? I want to get on that ride. What on earth? Why? Well, y'all, when you see what someone is willing to die for, you find out what they really believe to be true, don't you? Timothy saw That must be the words of God. I'll sign up for that all day long. And he did. So he points to his sufferings and he points to his everyday life. In my sufferings, you saw that I believe God's word is true. In my life, my teaching, my faith, patience, love, you saw that God's word was living and active within me. And so he says in verse 14, hey, don't just remember the scriptures. Remember from whom you learned it. Don't just remember the truth. Remember who gave it to you. You have everything you need in this time of difficulty, Timothy. You have everything you need because you don't just know the teachings, you know the teachers. And y'all, this is so important for us to remember. God's word, y'all, it travels just like it came to us. It didn't come magically by an angel descending. It came by God using people. And that's the way it travels. People don't just magically pick up God's word. It usually travels through people. God used men to write it, and he uses men to pass it on. And here's why, y'all, because this is a book that wasn't meant just to be read. It's a book meant to be lived out. You know what? My guess is this is true for you in your life. Who did you see live it out? Take a moment to think about who's someone in your life that you saw not just read God's word, but live out God's words. It may not have been the best preacher you knew. It may not have been the smartest guy you knew. But hopefully there was someone in your life, man, who, who submitted to this word and they lived it out. Listen, that person is the biggest influence on how you understand and apply these words. This is how God made us. This is how he created us. We all tend to repeat what we see in front of us. That's what we all tend to do. And man, so more than any commentary, more than any book, more than any sermon, the people in our life who live this book out, man, they are the biggest influence for how we understand it. Isn't that how it works? Absolutely. That's why Paul reminds Timothy, hey, man, we need to see it lived. And God's word has a lineage. You saw it in my life. You saw it in your mother and your grandmother's life from the time you were a child. It has a lineage. So Paul's message to Timothy is, you treasure this word because you know it comes from God. You've seen it transform my life. And Timothy, it'll transform your life. That's the message from the scripture. So I have to wonder, what would Paul think what would he say? Man, if he just showed up here all of a sudden, got like telebeamed or something, 
And he lived with us for a week in our homes, in our church, and he just kind of observed how we view, how we treat, and how we interact with this book. I got to be honest, y'all, that's a very convicting thought for me. And as I thought about it and prayed about it, I think, I think Paul would really have one big message for us, and it's this. Stop taking this for granted. Stop taking it for granted. Y'all, where we live in our culture and our time, we might have the easiest access to God's words and the least appreciation for it of any time in history. And it hasn't always been this way. It hasn't. Even for, we may think, man, there's English Bibles everywhere. You learn about the history of the English Bible, y'all, it's unbelievable. People haven't always taken it for granted. In the year 16, or excuse me, the year 600, the Catholic Church said, that's it. No Bibles except those written in Latin. And only the priests knew Latin. So essentially what they were saying is, if you only speak English, sorry. You have zero access to God's words now. It wasn't until the year uh, 1380. So over 700 years later, a man named John Wycliffe says, you know what? People need access to God's words. And so here's what he did. He began handwriting manuscripts of God's words. It took a long time. It took so long. Him, he died. His followers had to pick it up. They didn't finish it until 11 years after he died. That's how long it took and how painstaking it was. You know what? The Pope was so furious at him for doing this. 40 years after he died, y'all, they dug up his bones, they crushed him, and threw the dirt, dust in the river. That's how furious they were. And they were making a point to everyone else. Hey, you try this. This is what's going to happen to you, buddy. But they, people weren't deterred. A man named John Huss in 1415, he was one of Wycliffe's uh, followers, and he kept the project going. They kept hand-copying Bibles, and then they would have to smuggle them throughout the country trying to get English Bibles in the hands of everyday people. And listen, if they were caught, those manuscripts that took years would be burned on the spot and they would be executed on the spot. They did this all under the penalty of death. That's what eventually happened to John Huss. He was burned at the stake. And you know what they lit the fire with? You know what the kindling for the fire was? One of Wycliffe's handwritten English Bibles. That's what they lit the fire with. A few years later, in 1496, a man named John Collette said, you know what? Man, we're going to keep working on getting God's words written, but we need to speak God's words too. So back then, not only could you not have a written copy of God's words, under the penalty of death, it was illegal to speak God's words in English. And he said, no more. And at St. Paul's Cathedral, he said, I'm just going to start reading God's words in English. He wasn't preaching fancy sermons. He's just reading God's words. Y'all, within months, 20,000 people were showing up there every Sunday. Again, all of them putting their lives at stake, but they were so Desperate for God's words, 20,000 every Sunday are showing up. 1525, William Tyndale. By then, the printing press is around. So we can start to kind of mass produce these things now. And so he was going to make the first printed copy in English of the scriptures and mass distribute them. And again, they had to smuggle them. And they had to smuggle the printing presses. And then when they got done, they had to smuggle the manuscripts. The church, the king of England, they sent bounty hunters all over the country looking for Tyndale's and his followers, and everyone who got caught was killed. But you know what? They couldn't stop it. They couldn't stop it. They couldn't keep up. Too many people were desperate for God's words, and so it kept spreading. Eventually, they found Tyndale, and eventually he was burned at the stake as well. And it wasn't until three years later, in 1539, King Henry VIII finally authorized an English version of the Bible, a version of God's words that you and I could read without fearing for our lives almost a thousand years later. 
Listen, you don't work for a thousand years and sacrifice your life unless you believe this is God's words to you. So let's compare that to us. Some statistics for today in America, how we interact with the Bible. 87% of households, U.S. households, own a copy of the Bible. On average, each household in America owns four. So every household in our country, go to that household, on average, they're going to have four Bibles. I know some of us are throwing off those stats. Okay, Some of us collect a lot of Bibles. But on average, four in every household. Yet, yet 60% of the U.S. population reads God's Word sometime between never and four times a year. Less than half, 45%, less than half agree with Paul here that this Bible contains everything you need to live a meaningful life. Only a third, about 33%, agree with Paul that it is accurate, that it is God's inspired Word. So to summarize, y'all, all of us have four Bibles, well, we don't read it, we don't really think it's inspired by God, and we don't trust that it has everything we need. We take it for granted, don't we? We take it for granted. Is that, is that, look around, look at my life. Okay, how do we do that? How do we take it for granted? I think three big ways, y'all. We take God's words for granted when we don't read it, right? When we don't read it, when four of these sit on our shelves unread. I love what John Piper says says, you know what, you, a lot of people ask and they want to hear, hear God speak to them audibly. Did you know? Did you know you can hear God speak to you audibly? Just read this out loud. Man, I want a sign from God. God, give me a sign. What am I supposed to You don't need a sign. God has spoken to you explicitly and like a lot. There's a lot of words in here. It's God's words. And I know, y'all, I know for if you haven't done that before and had made a practice of it before, it can feel like that calculus text. And I open that thing, and I don't know what to do with it. And so here, I'm just going to give you a way that you can open up the Bible, read it anytime you want. And you don't need special books. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need anything of that. It's just three questions you ask of every text. First one is this. What does it say? What does it say? We, did, you know, we practice this the first part of the sermon. I mean, he gives us a list of all the ways it's profitable. He, he talks about his life a little bit. He names some cities. You're just looking at what's there. But listen, y'all, here's the trick. Just because you read it doesn't mean you know what's there. It doesn't mean you took notice of what was there. So, for example, I could ask you, you're all in this room. You've all been in this room for a while. You think you know what's in this room, right? But if I said, okay, without turning around, name me 50 items on that back wall. I mean, you can name a few, but most of us, you know, you just walk past it, tune it out. You're not stopping, paying attention, and noticing what's right here. Or if I asked how many chairs exactly are in this room, man, you have to stop, and you have to notice, and you'd have to count. That's what we got to do with God's Word. And one of the most eye-opening exercises I ever had in seminary and ask anyone who's gone to seminary. They, some professor did this too, I promise. They give you a verse, and they say, okay, I want you to go home, and I want you to make 25 observations about this one verse. Notice 25 things in this verse. And you're like, 25? Come on, man. You go home, and like the first 10 are pretty easy. You can get that. But then you're like, okay, and you keep muddling through, and eventually, lo and behold, you get 25. Go, go to class the next day, turn them in. Professor's like, wow, great, great job. You did it. Okay, 25 more. And you're like, great, I got the old senile professor that doesn't remember he already assigned this. 
No, he goes, 25 more. And you go home, and you're like, there's no way. You keep noticing, and you keep noticing, and lo and behold, there is. And so you take them, turn them in, oh, whew, man, that was a challenge. Man, awesome, great job, 25 more. You know, you wouldn't believe it, but you go home, and you find 25 more. Here's the deal with this book. You will never, it doesn't matter how much you dig, you will never reach the bottom of this book. Never. The more you dig, the more there is. So spend some time. Take notice what's there. What does it say? The second question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? And here's the tricky part. Not to you. What does it mean to them? Paul's sitting there writing something to Timothy, and he's trying to communicate something. What is he trying to communicate, and how would Timothy take it to mean? So here's an important thing to remember. The Bible, y'all, it can't mean what it never meant. So if you read this passage, you come up with something that it means, and Paul will look at you like you're a crazy person, you missed it. You missed it. You know, you can't read verse 12. It says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You can't read that and say, oh, that means everyone else who tries to follow God will have a hard time. You know, that, that's what Paul means. You know, sure, for Paul and Timothy, uh, sure for them. But God, he, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm trying to live a godly life, clearly. But God wants me to be happy and have fun. And so really what that means is some people will experience that, but I won't. That's not what Paul means when he said that. He said everyone who tries to live a godly life. So that's what he means. So the question, what does it mean? And finally, only after you've done those two questions, what should I do? What should I do? You plot to your life. Is there a way I need to persevere? Is there something I need to correct in my life? Is there something I need to believe in my life? Is there something I need to ask help for? from other believers or uh, somebody else in my life? What do I do? So y'all, you can take those three questions to any passage. You can open up God's Word and apply it to your life. It's that easy. It's not a calculus textbook. So read it. Take another way, y'all. We take it for granted. We take God's words for granted, y'all, when we don't do it. We take it for granted when we don't read it, and then we take it for granted when we don't do it. Y'all, I love James chapter 1, what it says. I mean, I kind of hate it, but also love it. He says, don't be just a hearer of God's word and not a doer. If you just hear it and don't do it, you're a hypocrite. And then, y'all, he uses this illustration that you don't even have to be spiritual to understand, okay? We can all understand this. He tells us, hey, go to God's word, not like a man looking in the mirror, but like a woman looking in the mirror, okay? I don't know about y'all. Man, I go, I'll go look in the mirror. Well, there it is. That's... No point in doing anything as good as it gets, you know? I don't even know why I look in the mirror sometimes. It's just like, okay, no boogers, got a shirt. Let's go. Y'all, a woman goes to the mirror carrying her supplies, right? Why? Man, because she's going to go and she is going to act on what she sees. Man, got to move this hair, got to freshen up this, move this thing around, okay. She means to act. And we go to God's Word, ready to act on what we see. And so that's why Paul says in verse 17, listen to this thing, and it'll equip you for every good work. Timothy, your life matters, your actions matter, and this book will guide you in every good work. And finally, last thing. Y'all, I think we take the Bible for granted when we don't pass it on. When we don't pass it on like Paul and Timothy. You know what, y'all? All of us, to the extent we have a version of God's words that we can read, we're like the second or third leg in a relay race. And man, we have been handed this baton. 
from a long line of people who gave their life for it and who God used in it. And so often we're like those, man, we grab that baton and we say, whoo, thanks. All right. Good race, everybody. And you say, no, no, there's, there's someone in front of you. You've got to keep that baton going. You've got to hand it off to someone else. And so many of us are just like, oh, well, they'll, they'll find one laying around somewhere. You know, maybe they'll go buy one at a store. They'll, they'll get a baton from somewhere. Y'all, I've got to be honest. This is a very real crisis in the church and our culture. It is. And for decades, especially in the, in the church in the southern United States, y'all, we, we have a situation where a majority of Christians have said for decades, you know what, someone else, will, someone else will pass on God's word to the next generation. Someone else will teach the kids. Someone else will pe- teach the people, maybe the professionals who don't know Jesus. Someone else will do it. But I'm just kind of here to just kind of show up. And, you know, there's, I know there's all kinds of reasons for this, and I understand it. Some of these re- reasons, y'all, are just selfish. And I know this because I'm selfish, and I think these things. Man, the thought of, like, putting together a lesson for uh, some second graders, hey, man, that's not very fun. That sounds like more work. I already got enough work to do. Y'all, I know I think these things, okay? I know we all do. I think for some of us, man, we're not reading it ourselves. We're taking it for granted, so it's hard to pass on where you're not looking at yourself. And I think we've kind of created this environment sometimes where we're insecure. We're intimidated, like, a lot like that calculus textbook, right? Man, we have had an embarrassment of riches in our country of really charismatic, really talented teachers. And so we listen to Billy Graham and the podcast and the Tony Evans, and we think, I'm not that charismatic. I can't do that. Y'all, Paul ain't talking about charisma here, is he? He's talking about God's words and relationships. That's what he's talking about. And so we think, I'm no Billy Graham, and so we're intimidated by that. But y'all, I think some of us, sometimes, we're just embarrassed. We're embarrassed because we don't know how. We don't know how to pass it on. We don't know how to teach a child or or teach a peer who who doesn't know the word. We don't quite know how to pass it on, y'all, and we're embarrassed that we don't know. And so we think, man, if I end up in some classroom or some Bible study, I'm going to get found out for how lousy of a Christian I really am. I know I should have been doing all this years, but I haven't, and so I don't know how. You know, I understand, and those are all very valid reasons, and those are reasons we all have to overcome. But my question for you is how long? How long? How long are you going to claim to be a follower of Jesus without passing on his words to the next generation? 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? I mean, what's the time limit on this? God has called his followers to pass on his words. And think about it. What did Paul, man, what did Paul say would prepare the next generation? What did he say was everything they would need for salvation and a godly life? He said this, God's words. And I know you can say, hey, I'm no Paul. I'm no Paul. I can't do that. I understand. The good news is it's not about you. It's not your words. It's his words. Plus, y'all, God has spoken through a, uh, or a donkey before, okay? He can do it again. Y'all, this is what this Make Room campaign is all about. People will see God's words, not just on a page, but lived out from us. That's us being the church. You know what? We want to be a church that's convinced, man, that this was breathed out from God. So you know what? If our kids are going to know him, they're going to need this word. If our kids are going to be able to follow him, they're going to need this word. 
When our kids face tough times, they're going to need this word. When other liars and deceivers come into our kids' life trying to to turn them aside from the truth, they're going to need this word. And so y'all, no matter what else we do, we're going to pass on God's word. Y'all, sign up in the back. You can sign up to do that. You don't have to know how. You don't have to not feel embarrassed or not feel intimidated or have to have done it before. You can join us on one of these ministry teams. Pass on God's word. And y'all, I'm telling you, a church that will do that That is a church that does not take God's word for granted. I want to close by showing you a video that I I saw just this week. And y'all, it moved me. It really did. It woke me up. Video shows a a group of Christians in rural China getting some Bibles delivered to them in their own language. And so y'all in China, it's hard to own a Bible. It's dangerous to own a Bible. See, the, the government there is under the impression that this is a powerful book. And put in the hands of believers, things happen. Things that may threaten their power. And so, if you have a Bible there, you have to register it, which puts you on the government's radar and makes it hard to get. And so, I want y'all to just watch. Let's watch. It's a quick video. I think it's less than a minute. As these uh, Christians in rural China receive their Bibles. And did you see the almost frantic, chaotic joy when they flipped that suitcase open and there all those Bibles were? And man, they just pounced. They couldn't wait to get their hands on one. Y'all, I think, you know, the most powerful part of the video, man, it starts off chaotic, but by the end of that video, did y'all notice it is almost completely silent? Why? Because already each and every one of those people has grabbed that book, they've got it open, and they're reading it. So excited to read it. Man, and did you see here in her words, the joy and gratitude in her words that she expressed for the brothers and sisters in Christ, the lineage of people who got God's words to them through their sweat and tears, she said. Will anyone say that about you? Will anyone say that about you? Maybe not in China, maybe right here in White House, Texas. Is there anyone to say, they brought me the words of God? They taught it to me and they lived it out. Church, these are God's words. Let's read it. Let's do it. Let's pass it on. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.